Welcome to the death panel. If you've had a chance to listen to Medicare for all week, please consider becoming a patron. It is only with your support that we're able to do uh, big stunts like six straight days of interviews about healthcare policy. From which we are still recovering. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's like good recovery. It's like being out at like a really good party where you're exhausted the next day, but it's totally worth it. Not that we have those feelings anymore because of the <laughs> pandemic, but... Right. Um, patreon.com slash death panel pod for five bucks a month you get access to our entire back catalog and you help support our work plug aside today we're going to break format a little bit we have unfortunately a example of a lot of the things that we talk about on this show going on in in my own life right now with my own health care yeah you'll note that we don't often verge into the personal here but occasionally <laughs> i mean there is a reason that we do this show uh and a reason that we do the that we are engaged specifically i think with like the you know corner of the political economy that we cover so often not a corner really as you know we talk about all the time like health touches every part of the political economy but let's just say occasionally something drops in our lap uh because of B's extremely rare condition, that is a very good example of, let's say, holes in the social safety net that one <laughs> could otherwise be forgiven for assuming are not holes, are there, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the iron law of uh, this podcast is when you think you've seen one abyss uh, you've only seen the one abyss. There's there are other abysses. We have, as they say in Hellraiser, we have such sights to show you. <laughs> and th- those abysses are all staring at you, whether you are looking at them or not. So exactly, <laughs> they're hungry. Yeah. So I am disabled. I am on Social Security disability insurance, which means that my primary insurer is Medicare's Part A and B, and Medicare Part D. I have a very rare disease. There's no charity. There's no organization. There's no support group. There are only a couple dozen of us. It's not a well-understood disease. But I am disabled, and I'm certified disabled by, you know, Social Security Administration and the federal government. And yet, because my disability is related to a diagnostic code that doesn't exist within the Medicare compendium, I have fallen through a crack that I did not know existed that my my specialty pharmacy and my doctors and all the people I've been working with trying to defend my right to access my medication. Um, none of us knew this existed. And what's happening basically is that suddenly in January of 2021, when we went to do a reauthorization for a drug that I've been on since 2010 called yeah. IVIG, we were hit with a denial, which is not unexpected. I've been on this drug for years and for and nine times in January, I've had to go through this process of endless appeals and trying to justify this medication and running into the issue of being a rare disease and not having, you know, tons of literature or even understanding about what my disease is. But this year was a little different. Um, this year, the denial wasn't about medical necessity. It was a technicality that my Part D insurer, Cigna, had sort of discovered, it seems like. And they said that because of the diagnosis that I had, that they weren't even evaluating medical necessity. They just said, on definition alone, 
that Medicare Part D did not have to cover my drug. And I'm pretty much shit out of luck with trying to maintain access to the one drug that is keeping me from going more blind that we don't actually know what's going to happen if I can't get it. And we don't really want to find out. But Yeah, because you could <laughs> die, basically. Yeah, for all or know. worse. I don't know. There are some things worse than death. Yeah, that's true. And we really don't know. And there's no research to say this is what happens when you take people with cryon off of IVIG because there are not enough of us to study that. And why would you do that if you've got a patient that's stable? Well, Cigna is doing that because Cigna has found a loophole that means that they don't actually have to pay for it. So they're saving about $130,000 on my care this year. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit like Columbo here. Uh, <laughs> the uh, resident Italian-American on the uh, podcast, now I have to be Columbo. Um, you know, because I like what's obvious to me in, in this story is the motivation for Cigna to make this denial. That's That's the thing that's like, you know, at this point, elementary. But like, I, I think the thing that's fascinating to me is... The denial itself, when it came, how it came, the form in which it came was like surprising to you. And like, I'm not sure that many people, I mean, really including us until recently, were familiar with how how they can do it. Like we, we know the right. motive. What we don't know, what we didn't know, and now I think we're getting a better sense of is the means. Like how how do they do you here? In a way, it's actually kind of hard to tell who is doing me. And that's been a really interesting situation. So so basically, this was a lot different from a regular drug denial and appeals process, much more different than any of the ones I've done even under Medicare so far. Because normally you, you go through the appeals process with the insurance company and you're fighting Cigna's people. And you have your doctors talking to the peer reviewers at Cigna. And you're basically trying to make the case to the insurance that they are legally required to cover it. But that's not actually what happened here. What happened here is that we went to that peer review process and my doctor said, this is medically necessary. And Cigna said, well, that's not really the issue up for debate today. And they denied it, basically saying that because, because the FDA authorization for the drug does not list my disease and because the Medicare compendium does not have a code or none of the compendia of Medicare have a code that corresponds to my disease needing this treatment, that from a definitional standpoint, IVIG doesn't qualify as a drug that Medicare needs to cover. So this actually got kicked up to a private third-party contractor called Maximus Federal Services, I think it is. Oh, that is, thank you, that is the most uh, Outer Limits Twilight Zone, uh, Maximus Federal <laughs> Contractors. Yeah. Maximus Federal, reviewing Medicare appeals, who we are. We are Maximus Federal Services. We are experts <laughs> on appeals. Jesus. Medicare hired us to review this file and decide if the Part D plan made the correct decision. We work for Medicare. We do not work for the Part D plan. So Maximum Federal Maximus Federal Services determined that Cigna was right and that this this definition issue sort of preceded any medical necessity argument that my doctors were trying to make. So we appealed that decision made by the third party contractor. And at this point, we're not even dealing with the plan anymore. We haven't been dealing with the plan in months. It went to a CMS judge and I had a hearing. So before I start telling this story, for anyone that doesn't know, let me just break down how Medicare coverage actually works. 
there are three parts, basically, that most people have. There's a fourth, but that I'll get into later. The first is part A. The second is part B. You've probably heard of those. The third is part D, which was only introduced during George W. Bush's tenure. And that is the prescription drug coverage. And what we're actually talking about today is Part D. Right. Part D, unlike Medicare Part A and B, which is your hospital and physician services, those, unless you have a, <laughs> unless you have a, med- see, all right, already this is like a total mess, right? If you're listening to this and you know nothing about Medicare, you're like, why the fuck is it done this way, right? So, okay, so Part A and Part B, unless you have Medicare Advantage, are administered by the federal government and not by private companies. However, Regardless of what Part D you have, it's always administered by private companies. Right. All right, you following me now? So effectively, a private arm of a private arm within the Medicare system, right? Yeah. Or at least for industry, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so basically, like when Part D was created, people framed it as Medicare is expanding coverage to include prescription benefits. But I like to. To tell people like that's actually not true. What happened when Part D was created is that a new privatized industry of Medicare was created in order to uh, create public-private partnerships, which could provide Medicare beneficiaries with prescription drug coverages. So you have a bunch of like companies like Cigna, Humana, United, United Blue Cross, all Blue of these Shield, big ones that Aetna. also all these big ones that we've you know talked about. In addition to doing stuff like running. Uh, private insurance operations like you may know through I don't know your job or the ACA health insurance exchange um, or through or you know some of these companies also do other public private partnership uh, engagements like managing state Medicaid plans uh, and things like that mm-hmm. um, they also are these private companies they also are the only avenue by which Medicare does stuff for prescription drug coverage and stuff like home infusion therapies and things like that. Anything where you have to have some sort of like pharmacological treatment outside of outside a hospital of a, hosp- of, of a literal hospital setting. So basically what's happened is that my plan that covers my prescription drugs, who is the payer for the medication that I receive an infusion of at home every four weeks called IVIG. This is the medicine that is keeping me stable. For all we know, it is keeping me alive. It is keeping me from going more blind. I have a rare disease. There is not literature on what happens if you take away the one thing that seems to be working. And that's what Cigna's done. Cigna is doing this experiment for us, whether we want it or not, because they have they have denied access to this medication, not on grounds of it not being medically necessary, but on grounds of it not meeting the definition laid out by the Social Security Administration of a drug that a Medicare Part D plan must pay for. So there's like it's when I think about like whether a drug is medically necessary, I always think about like, OK, is there some literature that your doctor is like pointing to is like this is really important but they're just saying they're they're saying like no we're not going to fight that we would probably lose if we fought it on those grounds they right. would lose they if would. they Dead. fought it on those and grounds and in fact in the in the ruling that B has gotten which i guess we'll get to we'll eventually get to that, yeah. you know it is said that you know basically it but despite it having been clearly medically necessary clearly medically necessary and it's you know and even beyond what is kind of said in the ruling i mean B's case because B is such a rare disease because there only are you know a dozen or so of 
her condition, like literally throughout the the world, as far as we know, from the best study, from the best and most recent we study that we have from like last year, I think. In fact, the fact that she has been on this medication is part of the scientific literature, essentially building the case for IVIG or similar like therapies to be used to treat conditions similar to hers or the same. Yeah. Right? So all of that being said, the drug co- or the uh, Cigna is basically saying, yeah, there's medically necessary and then there's the law. And, right. Exactly. Uh, medically necessary here ain't the law. The law says, well, let's check through the this list. Oh, the drug doesn't seem to be approved for this particular uh, condition on such and such list in such and such compendium. Oh, I guess we don't have to cover it then. How convenient for us. Yeah, yeah, actually, let me read this part from the decision letter, which I think explains it pretty well. Um, Medicare Part D is an optional prescription drug benefit program for individuals entitled to Medicare benefits <laughs> under Part A or enrolled in Part B. Part D coverage is provided through Medicare Advantage prescription drug plans. Medicare Part D does not cover every prescription drug, even if the drug is shown to be medically reasonable and necessary for the plan enrollee's condition. To be covered by Medicare Part D, a drug must be available to patients only by prescription, be approved by the FDA, and be used for a, quote, medically accepted indication. So what is a medically accepted indication. Yeah, I was guessing from the tone of your voice that the first two conditions are fine. It's that last condition is where they fuck you. Yeah, exactly. So a medically accepted indication is a textual definition issue, basically. Oh, that and, sounds very medical. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the Social Security Act, Section 1860 D-2E1, The definition of medically accepted indication uh, basically says that a Part D drug must be a drug that has FDA approval, lists a condition on the FDA approval, or in the Medicare compendium, there is specific reference to the drug being medically indicated for that condition. So presenting them with peer-reviewed studies, doesn't affect that decision or definition. It is really just very cut and dry. Does the compendia say that this drug is for this disease? And does the FDA approval say that this drug is for th- this disease? Now, the problem is, as already was mentioning, I there are not a lot of people with my disease. There's no foundation. There is not a lot of research being done. There is a very small patient population. So basically, the problem is it's pretty impossible to argue on medical necessity when they're using this very cut and dry sort of line in the sand of, is it in the paperwork or not? And my disease is so rare that it will not be in the paperwork. But 80% of people who use this drug use it off-label. Right. And I was going to say, this is the definition of a technicality. Like, yeah. I, exactly. you know, people probably overuse the term technicality. To refer to things that are, in fact, su- like substantive things. This is just like it happens not to be written in this way or in there. And they're like, aha, yeah. even though this doesn't make any fucking sense, it allows us to keep our margins. Like, that's it. So, right. so without these citations in the compendia, basically, 
there is no legal requirement under the laws which govern how these plans are designed and what the minimum coverage is for Part D plans. There is no law compelling Part D plans to cover a drug because it is deemed medically necessary by peer-reviewed evidence-based literature. Right. It's more that Medicare defines a drug as being covered when it is listed under these compendia or specifically on the FDA approval. So they in the in the determination hearing in uh, every process of this denial, when we've presented evidence of medical necessity, it's been hand waved away as irrelevant to the situation because that's I mean, not actually what they've been evaluating. Did Cigna even show up? No, Cigna didn't even show up to the hearing because I think if they did, they would have looked really bad because they would have been smugly, firmly saying this is about definitions. And I was, you know, begging the judge for my life. Yeah. Uh, so so they're like, you know, better. They're like, as long as this is just looks like we're just following the law and this doesn't have anything to do. This isn't a human process at all. You know, uh, yeah. the judge will just think about it like insert insert case turn crank you know output decision and and the thing is is that i had this drug covered previously under a different medicare part d plan because what these coverage requirements are are minimum requirements and many plans opt to offer additional coverage based on clinically indicated medical necessity and cigna has chosen to follow the very letter of the law here and that's what's happening, is that the the way that I've been able to access this drug before has been based on a sort of moral corporate generosity. <laughs> yeah. And Cigna is declining. Great thing to depend on. Yeah, Cigna is declining to uh, engage in that uh, optional generosity in this instance. And there is not a lot of leverage to push back on that because it's a very... It's a very weird, firm loophole that really fucks over people who don't have a disease that's very common, right? Because it's it's hard to imagine how I would be able to organize enough patients together to pressure these compendia to update their compendia if there are only like 14 of me, right? And many of them are not even in the United States. So how then... Do people with diseases that don't come with huge charity industrial support negotiate access to their medications? Because a lot of the plant, like a lot of the ways that you would try and get this medication if um, it's being denied, like through assistance from the pharmaceutical company, right? These also use the same diagnosis eligibility criteria to make you eligible for copay subsidies, for um, financial assistance for free or donated medications. And so really what's going on here is that the, the, the Part D insurer is saying, we're going to go by the letter of the law and they have the right to do that under the law. And I'm just collateral damage, basically. And the judge is just saying to you, what, like, I'm sorry, my hands are. T I mean, it's like the yeah. greatest trick the devil ever played is just saying, well, my hands are tied, you know, nothing I can do here. Yeah. I mean, uh, basically, he hand, he hand waved away um, my doctor's testimony that without this drug, I would completely lose my vision as being irrelevant. And ultimately, um, 
there isn't a lot of recourse for me to push push back or access the drug through other means either. So it um this is the worst this is the worst case scenario that uh I hoped I would never find myself in. Well, let me let me ask what may be a dumb question, but like so we've been talking about part D, right? Which is the privatized this this privatized part of uh Medicare. But like this with the infusion could could it be covered under part B, which is the like physician services uh, piece of this? I So when I initially switched on to Medicare uh, in 2019, I sought approval first for Part B coverage to get the infusion at an outpatient infusion center. It was denied, and I pushed back through appeal, and it turned out that it was going to be $1,400 out of pocket every four weeks just for uh, the drug copay. That wasn't counting the care copay. Um, So it was incredibly financially inaccessible. And I received a letter actually saying that it was preferable that I receive this care through home infusion billed through Part D. So we uh, then sent in an authorization for home care IVIG, and it was approved by my first Part D insurer pretty quickly, actually, within 42 hours. I remember being really confused because they actually called me to apologize that the approval had taken so long, which was like very weird <laughs> to me. I'd never experienced an apology from an insurance company, let, a, let alone for, you know, having taken only 48 hours to get back to me on a coverage determination, because ultimately it is the least wasteful <laughs> from a financial standpoint. It, the least wasteful way to give me this medication, the cheapest way is home care. So like. Cigna's made this uh, decision that, uh, that y- you know, you aren't worth their uh, their margins. Like, what is that? What is like the business end of the de- like? That's not going to show up in any of their annual reports. Like, what is that decision going to mean for you? Well, it's pretty scary because it's not they're not just dr- denying one brand of IVIG. They're denying the entire drug category. So. The the IVIG I get is called Panziga. Uh, it's a 10% solution. There are a couple different IVIGs. They're under a bunch of different brand names, Gammaplex, Gamunex, Gammaguard. Uh, Panziga is just one of them. What they're they're not, Cigna isn't saying we don't have to pay for Panziga. Cigna's saying we don't have to pay for IVIG writ large. So there's not even like hope for me to switch to a preferred brand or something, which is so often in these denial cases, the insurance is saying, we prefer drug X, you prefer drug Y, your doctor prefers drug Y, we don't give a shit, you're getting drug X, right? That's like a pretty standard approval scenario. This is just saying the entire drug category, we don't have to pay for, statutorily speaking. And what that what that means in terms of like what's going to go on in my body <laughs> um you know what this drug does is it puts in additional antibodies into my body that help my immune system regulate itself i've had uh 40 attacks over the past you know 10 years or so of something called optic neuritis optic neuritis can show up in a bunch of different conditions ms nmo Um, just on its own idiopathically, what it is is it's inflammation of the optic nerve that 
prevents the signals that are being taken in from the eye to be translated from the brain. It's damage to the optic nerve. It's inflammation of the optic nerve and the blood vessels around the optic nerve. And my disease is actually, it's been shown in in research that it doesn't just affect the optic nerve, but it affects the spinal cord, other parts of the brain, and can cause brain atrophy. And I do have brain atrophy already. I have brain atrophy in my left optic tract, which is where your optic nerve, like past where it crosses in the front of your face, deep inside your brain. Um, The sheath of myelin that covers the optic nerve has a huge fucking hole in it. And this is part of the disease process of, of the disease I have, which is cryon, which is called chronic relapsing inflammatory optic neuropathy. It's a very unusual condition and it's degenerative. And what is thought is that this drug category of IVIG slows that degeneration and helps to prevent the immune dysfunction, which causes these attacks. Um, So without that, my options are cortisol steroids, and that's about it. There aren't really other things that we can do to stop these attacks. So by making this decision, Cigna is condemning you to suffering at minimum. At minimum. Um, so the, du- the judge's uh, decision says the following. Uh, the FDA has approved the drug Panzega to treat primary humoral immunodeficiency and chronic immune thrombocytopenic purpura. The Medicare-approved drug compendia, American Hospital Formulary Service Drug Information, and drug decks list Panzega as indicated for primary humoral immunodeficiency and idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. Neither lists chronic relapsing inflammatory optic neuropathy as a medically accepted indication for Panzega. Therefore, the drug is not prescribed for a medically accepted indication as defined by the Medicare statute. Accordingly, Medicare does not cover the drug and the plan is not required to authorize the drug for the appellant's condition. Although the record shows that the appellant's symptoms have improved with the drug, Medicare Part D does not cover every prescription drug, even if the drug is shown to be medically reasonable and necessary for the appellant's condition. To be covered by Medicare Part D... A drug must be used for a, quote, medically accepted indication as defined by the Medicare statute and regulations. Even though the administrative law judge is very sympathetic to the appellant, Uh the administrative law judge has no authority to disregard the act's requirement that the drug must be prescribed for a medically accepted indication as defined by the statute. Conclusion of law, the plan is not required to approve the appellate's request for coverage of the drug Panzega. So the effects of this are, one, in addition to, it's not simply that, um, because, you know, I think another question that you could get in addition to, like, oh, wouldn't that be covered under Part B, is couldn't you switch Part D plans? But what this is, is essentially a federal level ruling saying that, technically speaking, no Part D plan has to cover this. Right. Um, which is, you know, obviously extremely fucked up because there's a reason you're on SSDI Medicare. Right. And I think a lot of people do think like, oh, well, you know, once you get on 
disability or whatever. Once you're you get fine. on Medicare, you're like, you're fine or something. But this is a huge, I mean, considering that, and, and which I guess gets me to part to, to two, because I said one is that like, you know, Cigna has effectively uh, through their like fancy, uh, you know, lo- legal maneuver, legal loophole uh, <sighs> maneuver have, you know, made it so no part deep plan covers this. In addition to that, this is essentially like this could happen to pretty much anyone on a part D plan taking anything off label. Yeah, that's what which really is a worries lot of me. medication. Yeah, actually, and the the people that I've been working with on my appeals and determinations for years now had not experienced this this particular denial before. And we're surprised because, as I was saying, you know, it's usually there's usually like um sort of like a handshake agreement that if something's considered medically necessary, the Part D plans, knowing that they're the population that Part D plans cover tend to be sicker and in more medical need than the rest of the population, there's sort of this handshake agreement that Part D plans defer to the medical community, knowing that the process of sort of updating these compendia is not as fast as the process of peer-reviewed literature that supports the treatment of many diseases with off-label uses of, of, of FDA-approved medications. Does that make sense? And yeah. So here's the biggest problem is that we have, you know, we talked to Cigna and we said, listen, like if Panzega is the problem, what about Gamunex? What about GammaGuard? What about something else? And they said, well, those also have the same definition problem. Right. And we might still try testing their bluff, trying to call their bluff, basically, to try and run approval for a a different IVIG to see what happens. But they have indicated to us um, in writing and over the phone and in emails separately from three separate people that Cigna has has plans to deny any IVIG that we try and access for me. And I think it's I think it's helpful to talk about like what are my what are the options? Like what can you do to actually get around this, right? And your options are are pretty limited. You can buy your way out of it. If I could uh hook up with a disease charity that could pay for this medication, then this would not be a problem. If I could um work and have a job and have not Medicare and have private insurance, this would still be a problem, but it would be different, right? And ultimately, like, I do not have any infrastructure of support outside of the individuals in my life who coordinate my care. And we don't really have a lot of options for people who don't fit into these, like, larger categories. And ultimately, I'm not really sure what my options are here. I mean, I'm going to appeal this decision, but... As we've laid out, the the decision that I'm appealing is really difficult to contend with because it's not that I don't need it. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that the need is absolutely immaterial to the coverage determination. And the fact that this can exist as a loophole is, I think, a pretty big indictment of the way we've set this up to begin with. And I, I mean, it makes you feel really worthless. I've, I've felt really worthless as a result of this process, I feel like I um, have been laid out on a tally sheet and judged to be not worth the investment. And I think there are so many different ways that you're made to feel that way. Um, when you're dealing with having a chronic disease, but so often 
it's about trying to prove medical necessity and that's not at all what I'm what I'm faced with here. Yeah, it's it's I think this is the this is the part where I get just mind-numbingly angry when the <laughs> incremental reforms are raised because it's like don't like when people were discussing Medicare Part D when Medicare Part D was passed the the framing of it was is like this 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 like balm this salve this thing that was going to like fix all of these uh <laughs> problems even though it was like very obvious like what was going to happen it's like very obvious that these are the dynamics is going to create that there will always be a trade off here uh, where the insurer will have a, an incentive to uh, to deny you, as you said before, this isn't your first rodeo in terms of denial. It's just that this one is far more legally savvy. Um, but like, I was reading the the signing ceremony, like what George W. Bush said in the signing ceremony for for Medicare Part D. Oh, it's like, you know, first of all, he doesn't even talk about the fact that uh, it's not just seniors that use Medicare. But let's just like leave that aside because right. seniors are like this the, the powerful symbol, right? Uh, drug coverage under Medicare will allow seniors to replace more expensive surgeries and hospitalizations with less expensive prescription medicine. <laughs> and even more important. What? Yeah, right. It gets better. Uh, and even more important, drug coverage under Medicare will save our seniors from a lot of worry. Uh, that's that's how's that working out? Uh, some older Americans spend much of their social security checks on their medication. Some cut down on the dosage to make a bottle of pills last longer. Elderly Americans should not have to live with these kinds of fears and hard choices. The new law will ease the burden on seniors and give them the extra help they need. Uh, I, I just, you know, and, and this is the thing that invariably, if it is, it is the kind of sweeping pronouncement that is incredibly common to incremental reforms like it's really funny like you read signing statements of like social security and medicare themselves and what's changed between then and now is not the language we still use ridiculously sweeping rhetoric to describe (laughs) uh these things what's changed is like how fucking little they do uh, and and how big the fucking fissures in the earth are uh that they leave people in. right i mean it's uh, i think so often uh, like People just assume when you get SSDI, when you get Medicare, you're good, right? Like you have access to doctors. It's not like being on Medicaid where like 60% of doctors won't take you as a patient and hospitals turn you away. 90% of practicing providers take Medicare. However, like the way that Medicare is structured is just as inaccessible and full of carve-outs and burn-ins and incomplete patching that has happened over the years. It is like the most evidence of like half-assed policy work, in my opinion. It's not that people are not trying to make it better. It's just that the ways in which Medicare has changed since it was passed have been absolutely painfully austere every time. There is no evidence of generosity in the way that these plan design frameworks are structured. They are very bare bones. They cover very little. Well, and the majority of what's been added is these uh, carve-outs for privatization, basically. Yeah, I mean, privatization has been given so much more attention. The ways to to carve out and offer various portions of this federal health payer program have received more attention than how to allocate care to the beneficiaries of this program. And this is where you see the salience of Medicare Advantage start to really be 
such a tantalizing sell because if I didn't know better, when Cigna told me, no, we're going to deny the whole category, and I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And the, the person at Cigna said, well, this is why Medicare Advantage programs exist. Medicare Advantage programs can choose to offer more than the bare minimum coverage. Like, it's this incredibly misleading sales pitch that we see over and over with Medicare Advantage, which is this sort of, oh, in combining Part D, Part A, and Part B, uh, we're going to offer you so much more. But the, the problem is, is that Medicare Advantage plans, for the large part, cherry pick who their customers are and tend to make the actual burden of like trying to pay for real medical care. If you don't actually have to go to the doctor that much, you don't have to get a lot of surgeries. And Medicare Advantage can be great because you can get your dental covered, vision, uh, hearing aids, etc. But when you're sick, when you have high drug costs, Medicare Advantage is just as austere as Medicare Part D. But this, there's this selling point and this sort of structural difference that these companies try and frame between their two products to really just try and move people, I think, over to the more profitable profitable side, which are these Medicare part, these Medicare Advantage plans. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like any sort of safety valves that exist, exist only sort of at the whim of or on the generosity of those who have uh, resources. They don't exist as a matter of right you know, I, I think that that's the that's the that's the key distinction. So it's like, yeah, if your disease were a bit more common, maybe you would have a, you know, a foundation that could help you. If your disease were a bit more common, maybe there would be a lobbying group that would have a little bit more juice uh, in, in Washington and, and could, you know, would already be working on the compendium issue. Right. Already would have had to, like, solve that. Yeah, right. Which itself is a temporary salve. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the problem when you design a system around the particularities of all of these little uh, these islands of groups and, and disease constituencies is that you will invariably this is the invariable consequence of it, um, because you're just saying, look, if pluralism, if interest group liberalism and pluralism doesn't work for you. Right. If, if like you can't, uh, you know, s sort of like yoke in with one of these, you know, larger, uh, more uh, robust groups, you know, there's no fucking solidarity for you. Yeah. Like and, and that and that's the thing that like that's why there's no other there's no other way. You know, in, in the in the broader sense, there's no other way uh, to do this than. You know, there's no other way to, like, make these problems disappear than something really substantial and solidaristic. That's, you know, that's the broader term, because otherwise, like, we have to just deal with the, the moral reality of what is happening to you, which is, it's fucking enraging. I mean, this is why we do this show, because I have a very unique perspective, which is unfortunately afforded to me by having a weird rare disease where you really start to see these these holes where they might not exist for other people and it it shows not only the urgency of trying to look for who was being left out in policies that are being proposed but what harm it could do to them what the material impacts of these it's not even like anyone's intentionally excluding people like me it's just that I'm people like me are just not a a thought they're not considered, you know. Yeah, well, it says a lot that even in the 
uh, the sort of victory lap speech announcing the passage of Medicare Part D, the disabled and chronically ill are not even mentioned as a category. They're not given that sort of political salience. And I mean, this goes back to the thing we talk about all the time, which is that fundamentally, like one of the biggest problems is that right now, health care is contingent on your ability to either be uh, guardianed by or married to or a worker who receives good health benefits. And these are the only like these are the only measures of where you get leverage and access. Right. Like so the the more valued you are to the economy, the better health care you get in the United States. And my value to the economy, my value to the workforce as someone who's in the surplus population is not as someone who receives care, but is as an example to people who are still working, to people on private insurance plans. I think functionally what I do is is I provide a great example that upholds the need for private insurance, right? Like what better example of like why Medicare sucks than what's happening to me right now? Like a very sick person who needs a medication. It is the only one that works. I've been on it for 10 years and I am denied on a technicality. No wonder why disabled people don't, you know, trust socialized medicine. Yeah, if you didn't know better, of course, if you didn't yeah. know better, you would like be you you would quite easily have, you know, get the wrong impression that oh yeah, like private insurance is somehow better or that Medicare advantage is somehow better. Yeah. But really all it is, all these things, I mean the the fact that I mean, that we are only like a razor's edge away from uh, you know, the from a regulatory position where a where private insurance companies um, would be able to do this sort of categorical denial just as easily. I mean, in fact, it's not like we never faced a a like denial or haranguing or whatever over this with a private insurance company before she was on Medicare, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like the last literally the last ten years uh, of B's life, she has spent like fighting to get this drug because this is the drug that w- that enabled her to get off of having to like literally be on fucking steroids all the time blowing up like a balloon and slowly having her like body rip itself apart from just the steroids right yeah like no i mean i i think that this is the thing is like the category error that people make here because it happens to be called medicare part d is is very much like it shows what happens when you begin allowing the the wolf inside yeah. the, mm-hmm. the hen house, right? Which is that the state begins to take on the characteristics of the marketplace right. with all of their uh, all of their uh, cruel sort of choices that they force onto people, with all of their uh, internal sort of understandings of, of who's deserving and who's not deserving. And what that does is that it does make people distrust the like the basics of the state apparatus like is it any wonder why people uh, have this sense that like their care is going to be rationed because we have allowed this logic to dictate the way that these programs work we have we have made this we have fused these two principles or these two ways of organizing uh society and i i think that just like for for a second Take take away the profit motive. Imagine that the Cigna didn't exist here. We would not be having this discussion. Right. Right. And 
I, I think that this is why the term reform or the idea that you can somehow regulate or control these companies, you can't uh, right. effectively. You, th- they will always find a way and they will always find a reason within the law to make their words the binding ones on whether or not you live or die. Right. There's no reform. They simply have to be destroyed. There's no right. world yes. in which a there is a building with the name Cigna on it and this isn't happening in some yeah. way. Right. Those right. buildings shouldn't exist. Right. And I, I think it's important to also think about why why did Part D uh, come into existence, right? Is it, it Was it in response to a uh, perceived need that people on Medicare are not able to get the drugs that they need? No. Part D was uh, the political pressure behind Part D is the same one that we critique all the time, which is seniors are spending too much on out-of-pocket drug costs. <laughs> And it was not people on Medicare who need medications can't get their medications. It was in response to political pressure of perceived financial austerity being, you know, imposed on our seniors as this sort of large, you know, silent majority conservative voting bloc and this sort of protection of the vulnerable, but short to this world vulnerable. Right. And that's part D like reflects that limited perspective in its like political framing right and and that what that framing has done in practice certainly has obfuscated some of the like issues with drug affordability right it definitely allied some of that financial pressure but it it's like incomplete framing from the get-go has created problems like the one i'm experiencing where Ultimately, what what happened was like a regulatory door was opened for private companies. And that logic is what dictates drug coverage for the most vulnerable now. And unfortunately, I don't think it's really done much of anything except for open the door to privatization. Drug costs have ballooned since the passage of Part D. You know, there's less political pressure on pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies raising drug costs because you don't have the example of, well, people on Medicare don't have drug coverage anymore. You know? Yeah. This is what I think about every time someone says, oh, we need a glide path. Oh, what if we leave some room for private insurance in a Medicare for all system? What if it's just a public option? Well, I'm sorry, none of those things create a constituency that shows me a way around the problem that I'm in, which is not a problem that is unique to me. And it should not be a problem for anyone in this country. Yeah. So it's like, what do I, what do, I do? <laughs> and that's, you know, I'll fight it. That's, that's what I'm going to do. But this is, um, this is a situation that so many more people could find themselves in with Cigna. Maybe this is a with anyone. strategy that other Part D plans will start to use why am i on signal in the first place you might be wondering if this previous part d plan was covering my drug why did i switch well i didn't have a choice that part d plan wasn't making money and so it was discontinued <laughs> yeah that's the other piece of this i think i think that maybe people might miss it like this is not the cruel this is not merely the reflection of the cruel actions of one firm right this right. is right. a reflection of the instability in people's care that this yeah. entire system creates and th- the instability and the 
the pain and su- I mean, from like a like a legal damages perspective, the pain <laughs> and suffering here is incalculable. Um, what you've been going through, and there's no way of there's no way of scoring that. There's no way of like including it in some like analysis with the value of statistical life. Like th- <laughs> this is this is the the kind of thing that that should like rend the state apart. Uh, you know, if, if there was a sufficient feedback mechanism to do so, but we're, we're living like, that's the thing is like, we are being asked to cope, to live, to endure, uh, this. Um, Well, and it's very plainly like, again, demonstrates the value of completely decommodifying healthcare or like removing, like, you know, essentially taking all of the things that touch, uh, health and healthcare, extricating them from, uh, the capitalist political economy, although, you know, again, and this is kind of, you know, one of the things that I think that we uh, do discuss from time to time, the more things that you remove uh, for, <laughs> for reasons of health from the political economy, you start to realize how little is left over, uh, really. But there are so many like, but what if or but, you know, pro- but the actual problem is, et cetera, like, yeah, uh, angles to approach this from. Right. There's health policy jargon. Well, the actual problem is it's not, you know, you should be a, you should be on a different type of Medicare plan. We've explained why Part B and Medicare Advantage like both have problems and, and the, the category issue. Right. Or the, the issue is this kind of like idea that this federal system is throwing this sort of like category error the moment that like when when you have someone who is not who is like many people frankly not going to neatly slot into this category i mean if you just think of the fucking history of medicine over the course of time there are plenty of things that have been called one thing for a long time where it turned out oh actually there were you know there's there's this like little subgroup subpopulation maybe you know who like who knows maybe in like you know, the mid 20th century or something, B would have been categorized as some other fucking thing that would have been covered under uh, whatever. But in 30 this years case, ago, I probably just would have been diagnosed with like MS, like a mild form right. of MS. Which no, would have exactly. Been wrong. And so now and, and you know, that would have been wrong. But, you know, can't stress this enough. I mean, just like even look at all the varieties of the coronavirus, right? There are an immense amount of things that can happen to your body that <laughs> may require uh, drugs like this or that may be helped uh, by drugs like this. And it's not... You know, it's not necessarily the case that uh, that it you know makes any sense to just say like, oh well, this this program that we don't have to touch a lot because like, why would we touch the compendia very often? You, you know, whatever, because the constituency is only this big, and because uh, there there isn't the as much capacity to generate the political pressure or whatever right. to make it so that like, actually, does it even make sense that Part D is limited in these things? Shouldn't it probably just be that? Uh, I don't know. Let's say if someone is prescribed this medication by, in this case, you know, not just a, a doctor, but a team of doctors who all have agreed on this course of treatment, who have been working on this case for over a decade, who have, who themselves and their institutions, the fucking hospitals that they worked for, have received funding and acclaim for the research that they have done on. And incorporating this case, the fact that because of the way that this is set up and because of the incentives that exist and because of the lack of levers of political pressure and power that this is able to be, that this is able to be a problem is entirely, entirely generated by 
stakeholder mobilization of private insurance companies, basically. Yeah. That's it. And you could say, you know, I, I mentioned before, there's so many angles that you could go at this from. Uh, like, you know, you could say like, oh, and this is why like market competition is better because then just people will go to the the plan that offers the thing. Well, no, because it's so fu- it's like a fucking expensive thing to do. It takes, you know, again, the drug is made from the pooled plasma, basically, of hundreds, if not thousands of donors. Thousands, right? if not tens of thousands, actually. Right. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of donors. It is like it is an expensive drug. This is one of the reasons it's not just like, oh, you can just like pay it for it out of pocket. No, we're talking about like thousands and thousands of dollars. $13,000 every four weeks. $13,000 every four weeks. There is no rational basis for quote unquote market competition right. to offer this, which is why all these things need to just be completely exculpated from the political economy. So it's like, what does a person do in this situation? Um, how do, how does an individual get the Medicare compendium changed? What am I supposed to do? You know, go without the medication? I mean, that's probably what's going to happen, functionally speaking. Cigna is taking my vision, and uh, there's nothing I can really possibly do i mean that's a reality i think i have to contend with is that i will keep fighting but there are not a lot of levers or footholds within the way that the structure of these plans are regulated for me to use to defend myself they're not um they're not designed for someone like me in mind i'm just so angry yeah I'm just so mad. I'm sorry. I've fought for so many years and this is just. Oh, sorry. I have a hard time seeing how I'm going to ever be able to get my medicine again. Especially when we lay it out this way, because the more that we talk about it, the more I realize that there are basically very few options other than getting the compendium updated and and that is like definitely doable but it feels like such a huge yeah how do we how 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 is the compendium updated is it happening i don't even know i don't even know i've been trying to find out and i it's like in googling it's it's like all i can find is like information on when they've added new compendia from what I understand, they're actually like contracted out to other companies too. Like this yeah, is not even was, something the federal government does itself. Yeah, I was looking for it thinking like, is there a page where oh, I I have this condition, it's not like you know, there's there's not there's something wrong with the compendium. How can I as a normal human being uh, update it? And like what you get is nothing like that at all. I mean no. it's basically impossible to find that. Um you know, I, I like. I'm sure it exists somewhere, maybe, but it's it's they if they if if it does, they don't want you to find it. The thing that always gets me too is like, I would really love to see people who advocate for physicians' autonomy to start getting behind something like changing the way that drugs are covered under Part D. Because what is more insulting to my medical team than telling them, I don't care. If you have 150 years of 
combined clinical experience among you and you're presenting me with 20 studies showing why this is really necessary for your patient, your training, your expertise, your clinical experience, your research, that means nothing. How fucking insulting. You know what I mean? It's right. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is this is why we advocate for Medicare for all with such militant specificity on this show, because we we directly know how putting everybody on one payer, putting everyone on legitimately one drug formulary means that you have leverage, that physicians have leverage, that patients have leverage, that disease advocacy-based charities have leverage, you know? And the problem, the problem is, is that we are, we are wedded to this idea of labor and, and healthcare being intertwined. And the fact of the matter is, is that it can't work that way because our jobs are making us sicker, our housing is making us sicker, People are less and less able to get health benefits from their jobs than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago, even like this, this trajectory that we're on, this thing that's happening to me might just be happening to me right now. But this is like, this is where we're going. This is where all of you on private insurance are going. This is what you have to look forward to. Yeah. And it's, and, and there were the the hegemonic project here relies on people not thinking about that it relies yeah. on the false sense of uh, security but just like i don't know if you have insurance from an employer like i don't know t- t- take take a little closer look at the benefits meeting i mean the uh, my my favorite thing that that's like happening now is people are being denied you know uh uh, therapy for things because their employers are saying or their insurer, insurers are saying, oh, um, we now have like a computer aided thing that will like <laughs> is, you know, technically it's like clinically effective on these particular like outcomes, although it's you know garbage uh, evidence, but like it, it'll substitute for it. So we don't actually have to cover talk therapy anymore. This is like these things are happening in gradual ways. But what you're seeing with B is like this is this is you're the you're the future that we all have to look forward to if we don't do something now and not to just like keep harping back on the conversation that i had right before medicare for all week with abby curtis and rachel cohen but it is again this sort of process of selective uptake you know you see medical necessity and and you know research evidence supporting austere decisions like the one you're describing phil where they're saying here are five studies that say you don't need a therapist here's a work workbook like that's fine Right. But then that sort of that's conditionally applied, because when you're trying to use uh, studies to get access to IVIG, for example, like I am, it means fucking jack shit. Right. Because the, the problem is, is that ultimately, like the way that we actually use expertise in this country to justify these decisions is flawed because the, the goal of the way that we've set up these systems is to increase privatization. We have allowed profit to be a variable. And the, the fact of profit being a variable in the first place is where a lot of these problems actually originate because it's really hard to make money giving people the care they need if your goal is to make money on care. The way that we make money on care as a society is by keeping people fucking healthy. Yeah. If you keep people healthy, I don't know, they're probably more fucking productive. 
in their economic capacity than if they're sick or if they're spending, I don't know, 40 hours in a week on the phone with insurance trying to get access to the drug that keeps them from going blind. Wouldn't it be maybe interesting to see what happened if all the people who spend all the time fighting their insurance company suddenly had that time for something else? You know, that's where we make money off of health, not from the administration of health, but of from the things that come as a product of being healthy, from the, from the time that's like reclaimed from not having to fight for this stuff, from the security of like, I don't know, being able to stay more biologically stable. And that's not how we think about it at all. And that's not how these systems are framed. It just, it reminds you also of like how, how these interactions also have downstream political effects into how people yeah. perceive the government, how people perceive their care, how people people perceive their value in society. And this is like speaking from personal experience, like I feel pretty, pretty fucking worthless as a result of this experience. Yeah. I mean, it's like in, in the years 2017 and 2018, the aggregate annual cost of small conferences in towns in Switzerland and at Harvard and, you know, Princeton on like, why are people so, why, why things are very weird now? And if you don't have trust in government, it's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> Obviously. Like when these kinds of things keep happening, what do you expect? Um, like how, how would somebody like, how would you have trust in an institution that would do this to you? Right. How yeah. would you have trust in, in, in a, in a set of governing principles that say you're essentially, you're extinguishable yeah. if we, if we think it's necessary. Yeah. And again, the easy, the easily misjudged answer of just, oh, well, that's why you retreat into privatization or whatever. Mm-hmm. All that does is just further exacerbate any of this well, stuff. When, yeah. At the symbolic level, like privatization for people, it's like, well, that's, we're going to get power out of this equation if it's somehow the state is not involved. But like what that means and, and what it means in this particular case is that the judge, um, in addition to like thinking about the law uh, when he was making your you know, making the ruling there. He's also thinking about like Cigna's judgment. Its judgment was the instigating uh, factor for the case. So like Cigna is effectively, if what it means to be a state, right? If we, if we follow our old friend, Max Weber is monopoly (laughs) over the legitimate use of violence. Okay. Then in what sense is Cigna not the state here? (laughs) <laughs> right yeah or in yeah. what sense i guess i would say is there really a monopoly this is it, there's it, at the very least th- this responsibility is shared uh, yeah. for enacting violence yeah absolutely i think that's a really good way to put it phil i mean the, i think that the thing that that's so striking to me too is that just the sense that i've gotten in this whole process is that also like both parties this the the federal government portion and the private insurance portion have this attitude of oh it's not my problem i'm just following the others orders or i'm just you know it's there's this sort of passing of blame and reflexive avoidance of being responsible for the actual results of this decision you know that this the the government is saying well cigna's right and cigna's saying well this is what the government law says and so it also is is framed in this way that completely avoids any accountability or guilt or admission of 
of cruelty or violence, too, because it's this sort of impersonal, just following orders, ma'am, kind of framing. I mean, the judge got my age wrong. He called my disease Orion instead of Cryon. He completely was confused and misrepresented my disease in his findings of fact and analysis. And all of those mistakes in this decision don't matter because he's not actually tasked with evaluating anything except for is Cigna's framing textually correct? Are they just following the rules, you mean? Yeah. Right. Just following orders. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, this is why we completely brush off anyone who says like, oh, we'll just do a public option or whatever. I mean, there are proposals for the public option. I mean, I was, and this is, this is not just fringe stuff. This is this includes statements uh, made as recently as last year uh, by Chiquita Brooks Lashore, uh. the incoming, well, yet to be confirmed, confirmed, I guess, but the 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 person who was just named uh, CMS head. But this includes statements made by people like potential next CMS administrator uh, Chiquita Brooks Lashore about how a public option, you know. Uh, and she she was speaking of proposals by uh, by other people. She was just giving a rundown of what she sort of considered, you know, notably excluding Medicare for all, but what she kind of uh, considered to be some of the policy frameworks that had been floated. But she uh, one of you know one of the things that she mentioned was that there are and there are existing proposals for incorporating a public option that would essentially run like Medicare Advantage, right? Run like these privatized Medicare programs. So that's not going, again, that's not going to do shit, right? right? Like a public option is just more of this, you know, continual hand waving of like, oh, like, because what reformism actually is, I know we got into this with Dean Spade on that episode in, in Medicare for All Week. So this may sound familiar, but if you want to hear a lot more about this, go back and listen to the Dean Spade interview. But what reformism ultimately is, is saying, instead of doing you know, the thing that, you know, maybe could, should be the actual goal. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to say, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get to those big ideas later. Let's make this uh, like little tweak for right now and pretend that'll help a bunch of people. What that's really saying is we're never going to get to that thing. Like the thing that's left out, the people that are left out, the cracks, the holes in the fucking social safety net that exist for people like B, and I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this to fall into, those cracks are always just left to linger, mm-hmm. right? That is all like reformism is fundamentally just saying all those cracks, we'll get to it later. We're right. not going to clean up the mess. We're going to push it under the fucking bed. We're going to make it so no one talks about it. We're going to do enough to make it so that it's not a politically dangerous issue for us. You know, so and like sometimes this happens in, in ways that are literally murder, like with what Andrew Cuomo is going through right now, trying right. to like hide the fact that, uh, you know, his, his decisions actively killed a bunch of people in nursing homes. And then he tried to cover it up. Like I mean, have the, to add an appendix to that book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, well, we don't just need like a revolutionized revamped payer like we need power yeah we need power over our health 
And over the past hundred years, all we have done is ceded power to private companies. We've ceded our rights to health. To financial institutions called exactly. insurance companies. Yeah. And we do, it's not a payer problem. It's a power problem. The payer as an entity, as a factor in this whole conversation, the the fact that the the livelihoods of private companies are considered to be more important than the lives of people needing care is reflective of the fact that the payer at all is a problem of power. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what's going to happen, but as I said at the top of the episode, this is, you know, a very instructive crack that we have stumbled upon and it gives I think a very good example of why in particular we are so firm on certain issues. And I think what's most frustrating to me is that I, you know, when you start to talk about this kind of stuff publicly, what you start to receive are a lot of messages asking if you've tried certain things or have you done this or have you done that? And some of them are very helpful and I always appreciate that. But there is a tendency to start getting messages where people question whether or not you do deserve the drug. And I hate to say that now that we've done this, I I fully expect to probably receive some messages saying that I have somehow missed something, done the paperwork wrong, neglected to reach out to XYZ charity, and therefore not getting this drug is my fault. And let me just say to those people, please cure the austerity brain in your head. Well, and I'll say to those people, go fuck yourself. Yeah, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Before you send that DM to B, just go fuck yourself. Seriously. <laughs> if you're going to send that DM to B, send that DM to me too, because I'll also yell at you. Because B will fucking curse you out in her DMs and then block you, and I will do the fucking same. Go fuck yourself. Because I should not have to beg for my life as much. If, <sighs> I really don't think I should. <laughs> I shouldn't have to beg for access to something that'll keep me from going completely blind. No one should. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that my whole life is begging to not go completely blind when the means for not going blind are right at my fingertips. I just, yeah, I don't well, this need is the like, administrative this is, burdens. Yeah, we don't need the, uh, you know, visionaries to like solve the hard problems. No, the the answer to this is easy. It's the power that we need. It's the power that we need. Yep. I think that's a good place to leave it. Because um, I think if we keep going, I'll just keep getting more upset. And I don't yeah, need that, that yeah. stress hormone in my body. And right uh, if you miss us talking about the news of the day, as it were, <laughs> or, pol- or you know, national politics writ large, um, listen to our Patreon episode for this yes. week uh, from Monday. Chock full of which, insights. We talk about the Cuomo nursing home scandal and we talk about the even yet more inflamed conversation over the school reopening uh, debate as inflected by the CDC guidelines, which we also talk about um, from last Friday. And one very special thing, which is worth mentioning on this public episode, uh, Monday's Patreon episode was Vince's last. Very bittersweet. We, um, We do a... We have kind of a little send off at the end, basically. Patreon.com slash death panel pod, right? As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.